Okay, I think we might make a start. Um, hi everyone, I'm Esther Milne and um, welcome to this panel on working creatively with fairy tales. So clearly I'm the chair for this session and as chair one of the duties is to introduce the speakers which I'll do uh, in a moment. So in preparation I asked for everyone's bio as well as submitting my own. And one of the panellists uh, remarked how weird it is to write about oneself in the third person. And I completely agree. Maybe some of us have had that same experience when asked to write in this genre of wanting to say, well, she's queen of the world, the end. It's certainly a strange skill to learn, though I guess one would recognise in the era of the status update, not entirely impossible. Indeed, I rather pride myself with the fact that I have never written an update that uses that tortured syntax of talking about oneself in the third person. You know the kind of thing. Esther is trying to write copy for Acme, but she can't think of any fairy tale puns. Or Esther wishes her prince would come, but only if it's Charlie Sheen. <laughs> Apologies. I thought I had to get that obligatory reference out of the way. So I guess... By this intro, I'm trying to raise the question of narrative voice, how it works symbolically and rhetorically to create myth, fantasy, legend and trope. And today we're very lucky to have four really great speakers who can decode some of these cultural articulations. So each speaker will uh, talk for about 20 to 30 minutes and then at the end we'll have open it up for a, a larger discussion. And I'll introduce each speaker just before they talk. So first up, I'd like to introduce Joy Norton. Joy has a passionate interest in the ways image, story and psyche commune to facilitate the unfolding and development of imagination, creativity and psychological healing. She's an analytical psychologist in private practice here in Melbourne. For her, the experience of images, symbols, our personal and collective stories are a significant means of understanding the human psyche. Fairy tales enchant and deepen the journey towards our self-understanding, often producing the underdeveloped or discarded aspects of our potential. The work of Carl Jung and Marie-Louise van von France underpin much of Joy's psychological orientation to fairy tales. In this panel, Joy is presenting a paper called Symbols in Fairy Tales, The Witch's Curse, that will cook up a cauldron of images of the witch for us to brew together. Thank you, Joy. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Eye of newt, toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and howlet's wing, for a, a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth, boil and bubble. Today we are cooking up a brewing about the image of the witch, maybe making a potion. <clears throat> we meet her curses in many places, some familiar and received, others less seen or recognisable. From the Wicked Witch of the West with poor Dorothy, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog too. Dorothy, going so soon, I wouldn't hear of it. Why, my little party's just beginning. To fairy tale witches... With their pointing fingers, the 13th witch fairy, she will die. Then saved by the 12th fairy, no, she will sleep for a 100 years. Or in Rapunzel, the baby is mine, a pointing finger asserting the curse. 
In fairy tales all over the world, we meet many variations of the witch and her curses. <clears throat> and my focus with you today is the curse of the witch in fairy tales, how it captures us and how we might understand it psychologically. We imagine witches readily. The images will be running through on the PowerPoint as we sit together. Do we remember the curse or just the outcome of it? The princess goes to sleep for a hundred years. The children will be eaten because they are in the witch's house. A child will be given up in a deal by dad when he climbs over the wall to satisfy his pregnant wife's addiction. Maybe toads and lizards will fall from our tongues or if we are good, pearls and diamonds. Maybe a character is turned into a fawn or a frog or a horsehead, or perhaps they are disabled, blinded, lose a body part, are disfigured or imprisoned. They are dark tales. These fairy tales are kept alive in culture and the oral tradition is important. Try changing the words of a story for a child. We might have tales rekindled as we read to children, or we may find a story stays with us well into adulthood as a call to understanding something about ourselves, something we have not taken in, or some experience maybe that is a struggle within. Intrapsychically, a cauldron is cooking. The image of the witch appears alive over time, imaginatively. It captures something in us darkly. It enchants us, enticing us maybe into thinking we are nothing like the witch. We perhaps prefer to identify with other figures in the tales. We are caught by the spells of the curse like, when shall we three meet again, eye of Newton, toe of frog? The darkness fascinates and scares. And the power in the image may be appealing. The sense of controlling others wished for, wish, uh, controlling others, as for example in the TV series Bewitched. Or in Macbeth, the seduction to be all powerful by calling on the power of others with someone else orchestrating, responsible and managing our own darkness and bad behaviours. We assign to the witch the attributes we wish to disown, discard, abandon or regard as not us, as other. In intrapsychic life, inside where we live, this process may mean the witchy image is powerfully cooking up a poisonous brew that puts us to sleep to the less-owned, immature aspects of psyche, the not-let-in-to-consciousness bits that poison us. At the other end of this cooking process, the witchy part tension psychologically is making a potion, a challenge to change, to develop, to become older and wiser by meeting that which is in need of maturity or wising up. The etymology of the word witch derives in one school of thought from witchy or wicca meaning seer or diviner, to know or to see, from the same root word as wit and wisdom. Once hags and fairies were synonymous. The association with herbal law and healing became lost in medieval times, mostly for political reasons, but that's another story for another time and is a dark tale itself. Witches with their spells, enchantments, magic, darkness and curses are part of our cultural experience. From ancient cult cultures, the earth medicine and herbal law of the healers and shamans, the cauldrons of witches brewing and stirring, to Shakespeare's Mac Macbethian hags around the cauldron in the wilds, these three women link us back to the three fates, the moray, so essential as the source and determinants of all life.
the fates. Then, to images of witches at seasonal transition times, like Samhain or Halloween. When, it is said, the veil between the worlds is thin, and that which is essential to life is retained, and the rest culled. Witches dwell in these borderlands, outside the experience and boundaries of the conscious realm. The shape-shifting aspects of witches remind us of her familiars, the raven, the cat, the wolf, the black, the, the cat, the owl, the cat, the wolf, black or night creatures, the broomstick, dark flying silhouetted against the moon, all images that create a particular resonance in our experience. They remind us that the witch journeys through the night. Through popular culture, we meet witches in the witches of Eastwick, charmed, bewitched. The image of the witch is alive to us today. Classical works like Euripides introduce us to Medea and we journey with her and Jason darkly. Homer tells us of Circe's enticement to Ulysses and the risk of being turned into a pig. And the snake-haired Medusa stares us to stone. Mythology is alive to the power of these witchy women. The Wizard of Oz terrifies us with the Wicked Witch of the West who plagues Dorothy. And the Narnia story of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe introduced the ice-cold white witch to us. Artists work with their witchy sketches. Our imaginations and psyches are captured by the images with their wildly different expression relative to everyday life. These images hold something for us. They become imbued with meaning, gathering up psychic energy often outside our awareness, in dreams or met in the repeated difficulties we find ourselves in in life. The same type of person or inner process appears like a curse, potentiating the inner image and then constellating into a symbol as they hold oppositional and conflictual material for us. The image then becomes a living symbol, a psychological story telling itself to us, often about something we prefer to disown, discard or ignore, be asleep to, remain unconscious to and mostly may need to know in order to become more fully ourselves. How do we make use of these images in psychological life? Often the fairy tale characters represent oppositional tensions within life, within us. Beauty and ugliness, new versus old, good versus evil, nastiness and envy versus generosity and gratitude, caring versus abandonment, danger versus safety, predatory versus benevolent impulses, imprisonment versus freedom, poverty versus riches. The fairy tales reveal the spectrum of human nature in all its forms to us. The characters generally are anonymous, not named, just a girl or a boy or a princess. The plot usually involves a particular setting, a kingdom, a forest, a well. The storyline has a challenge, a task, a danger-filled journey, frequently meeting 
a curse or a dark power, often a witch, and then a transformation that occurs following engagement with that darkness. Whilst we may reel away from the witch and her curse, the real curse is not to take up the witch's offer. Ponder the curse in Hansel and Gretel. The two children are taken to the dark wood by their father and stepmother, their mother having died. They are taken there to be abandoned as there is not enough food to feed them, no nourishment. Not enough food is a major theme in this story. Their attempts to avoid being abandoned fail as even the breadcrumbs are gobbled up by the hungry birds and the children to their terror are left lost deep in the woods. They then discover the house made of food with the old witch who, allow, who will allow them to eat at first. Then they are trapped by the promise of food that means they will be devoured. Trapped between the absence of nourishment and abandonment, they are thrown back onto their own resourcefulness. The dark mothers die and the children find their way back home changed. The dark encounter confronts them with hunger, poverty, cruelty and abandonment. There are themes here recognisably current, though different in some ways from the themes of the time of Grimm's and earlier, famine, death, poverty and lack. In the story, the curse gets broken by facing the fear of the witch, finding agency and a transformation or flow of life returns. The Hansel and Gretel figures challenge the Hansel and Gretel figures face challenges in the wood, the place of fear. For Gretel, so looked after by her brother, her challenge is to manage her imprisonment by the witch and overcome her terror and act to save herself and her brother. Hansel becomes weakened in his cage and meets his need of assistance from his sister, perhaps. The oven and the cage seem like incubation spaces where the challenge to survive is met. At times, maybe once upon a time, the inner life of each of us is challenged to survive, to face and deal with that which is less developed in ourselves, other to ourselves. We are trapped by the fear of the curse of being eaten, consumed into another through fear or circumstances in life. If we fail to rise to the challenge the curse situation brings and offers, if we fail to respond definitively, as did Gretel, with her decisive shove of the witch into the oven, we remain trapped and lost. Imagining ourselves into the stories can help us engage and, and challenge the dimensions less accepted or available in ourselves, where the abandoned, not nourished places, less fed parts of ourselves can be activated and faced and may lead to riches. In the tale of Briar Rose or Sleeping Beauty, the joy of the long-for birth is crushed by the curse that arises from the 13th fairy after her exclusion from the festivities. Though fairy numbers do visit, the fairy numbers at the party do vary across these tales. The anxious parents in vain attempt to protect their beautiful daughter. I'm going to dare to go backwards. <laughs> um, the anxious parents 
in vain attempt to protect their beautiful from the daughter from the curse that she will prick her finger on a spindle and die. The curse, the death curse, reduced by 100 years of, to 100 years of sleep by the kindly fairy who had been re- rudely interrupted by the cursing witch fairy. Good turns bad when angry. Like most adolescent daughters, the, like most adolescents, the daughter seeks that which is forbidden or finds it accidentally and the curse is fulfilled. She is unconscious for 100 years, as is her context and her world. That which had not been invited in becomes a cursing presence. Those aspects of personality uninvited in put us to sleep. Timing is everything in this tale. The prince awakens her, having arrived as the hundred years was up. The prior princes having been killed by the thorns, which are now no barrier at the key moment. Thorny, prickly defences of the kingdom foster unconsciousness and keep out the world of the new. The spell of the uninvited guest overwhelms consciousness of the kingdom. Curiosity is discouraged and fated to become unconscious. Someone from outside the system at the right time can break the curse and we wake up to ourselves. Meeting someone or something different to us can wake up parts of ourselves that have gone to sleep. The kiss brings breath, life, to us. In this story, a birth brings a curse. After an infertile time, birth comes but at a cost. Something is lost. The kiss of life awakens that which is frozen into sleep, into unconsciousness or outside awareness. Relating to others outside our familiars brings life in, if timely. The curse here in Briar Rose reminds us that in many ways life can keep us unconscious and asleep when we fail to embrace that which is different, which is uninvited, when we ignore the witch for whom no place was set, the one who had been forgotten, the things we don't want. In fairy tale, what we notice may be significant personally. As you are listening, there may be things you notice about the tale or a character who catches your your, your fancy or your focus. Say, for example, the father here in Briar Rose, he's the one who doesn't invite in the witch. Such wonderings may be imbuing the image with meaning, setting up attention and lead towards the image becoming a symbol, the story becoming alive to you and then you're off on a psychological journey. In the Rapunzel story, the beautiful daughter seems to belong to the witch after a deal is done by her father when he steals rampion or bitter turnip to feed the hunger of his pregnant wife. The said rampion was growing over the wall in a garden not of his cultivation. The deal is to give up the baby. The child is born, given to the witch, locked away from the world of others other than her witch gatekeeper. The outside world, however, can never be kept out, and a young man hears her singing 
and works out how to enter her domain and they become lovers. The locked away woman now speaks of the weighty comparison of the witch and her prince to the imprisoning witch who then curses them both and thus Rapunzel is abandoned again and her prince is blinded. Cast out into the desert alone, they wander on separate paths, she births two babes, they endure and eventually find each other and are healed by their shared pain, her tears restoring his sight. This story tells of the parts of us that can be orphaned by our parents at birth and in our inner life of care-giving aspects of ourselves that do not nourish us but rather feed addictions and dependencies. The story tells us when we express our own desire, we're cast out. When we express our individuality asserting our need to grow, the differentiation from another may not be accepted. The story also tells us about how our hungers, greed and insatiability make us abandon our commitment, how our dependencies lead to abandoning new life, how with a birth within our psyches may be compromised by conflict in the world of those other aspects of our inner selves who care for us. And in the outer world, those caring for us, even when doing their best, will find it hard to set us free. A differentiation needs to happen. The fairy tale reveals how life is limited by narrow views and how the immediacy of personal desire may lead to a failure in the care of another who needs it. And the world narrows relationally, not allowing any assertion of self and potential. The way out is letting our hair down to something new, finding our own power. And whilst fraught with severance and hardship, a time in the desert alone leads to meeting birth and meeting relationally with that which is lost. These three tales and their curses, enchantments and spells, delivered by an old woman... And the young um, offer the young protagonists a challenge. The stories create oppositional tensions, in particular between the old woman against the children. The discarded children find a way to fight and make themselves uh, find, find themselves able, and they are transformed. A new brew is in the making. We might consider all aspects of these stories represent inner aspects of our psyches, including the witch part of ourselves. This witch part may be activated when her territory is trespassed and not respected. When she is forgotten, then a curse follows, a curse that will abandon new life and disallow development, that will disavow otherness and difference, ignore discarded, disallowed, abandoned parts of ourselves, potentials not engaged, inner deals will be made to keep protected insular lives. We keep ourselves cursed if we don't meet the witch's curse. In many fairy tales, the darkness of the witch, in fact, offers us engagement with otherness, our growing edge, the zone between conscious and unconscious life, our internal challenges that, if not taken up, keep us poisoned and toxic, stunt our growth psychologically, keeping us as children, naive and unaware of the potentials in life lived. The fates govern the way we live our lives and what comes to meet us. Whether we pick up the journey offered and go for a ride into another zone in ourselves. We might travel in a cauldron wildly cooking up. Alchemically developing our metal and philosopher's stone. Meeting our inner hag and haggling one. 
settling into the elemental riches, taking up the offer to travel beyond the familiar, finding the poetry in the earthy woman, meeting the changes, the hag and the apple offer, saying yes to the magic shape shifting. Will you meet the curse of the witch? Keep in mind the image of the witch derives in part from the three fates that spin life, the mystery of life itself with its measure, threads and cuts. Remember too that witches are linked with the healing traditions, with women's knowledge and the wisdom of herb and earth law and earth connection. Life's challenges come in the guise of a dark initiation by our lives unfolding in ways we did not expect, ways we may not regard as us. The curse of the witch allows us an opportunity to grow and develop. Will you meet and sup with the witch and what she offers and enter a wild, unique journey towards yourself? Thank you. That was beautiful, beautiful prose and amazing images. And a clattering pen. Okay, so now I'd like to introduce our next speaker, uh, Adam Hunt. Adam has worked in advertising agencies in Sydney, Singapore, Amsterdam, London and New York. Along the way, he's collected awards at the Cannes International Advertising Festival, the Grand Prix at Eurobest. He has work exhibited in the permanent collection of MoMA in New York and has been published by Random House. But his most treasured achievement is being the first person ever banned by the ABC for his provocative work on the Gruen transfer. Adam also worked at the coalface of the Kevin 07 campaign as an underground digital warrior, doing the attack ads the Labor Party wanted out there but without the ALP logo on them. He was a creative director of one of Australia's most loved commercials, uh, the Big Pond Rabbits ad. However, he finds most advertising profoundly boring because it takes itself too, too bloody seriously. And if I can just make a narrative aside here, here we seem to have entered the realm of third person gone wild. So to continue with Adam's bio. Almost all ads are worthy sermons because advertising is controlled by idiots who believe that people buy things for rational reason, reasons. Adam passionate, passionately believes that's bullshit. If that was so, why do people buy new cars, high-heeled shoes and cures for baldness? For Adam, the best advertising is based on an emotional insight. And emotional insights come about by stealing from popular culture. That emotional insight is then perverted and twisted into a sales vehicle. Today he'll be discussing how fairy tales operate as fair game for advertisers. His paper is entitled Advertising People Are Cultural Thieves. So over to you, Adam, and I hope you have some vitriol left for the actual presentation. <laughs> Hello. Um, well, yeah, I guess we're done with the prose and the poetry now because advertising is ugly. Um, Thanks for um, the chance to come here today and, and talk about something I find fairly passionate. Um, you know, most people, they see stuff. Um, advertising people, they, they see stuff and they think, oh, how can I use this to sell something? Last night I was walking through Chinatown and um, just around the corner and I, I saw this painted on the wall and it just made me laugh, it made me smile. Um, so I took a photo of it and here it is and, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm going to disobey it right now. Um, Okay, where's my little button? 
Ooh, it's not working. Here we go. How many ads do you see each day? Um, look, just before this, getting up on this podium, I went and had a nervous piss in the, in the toilets there. And um, uh, as I went to dry my hands, because you've got to wash your hands, as I went to dry my hands, there's a TV screen in front of me showing ads. And, I'm, and then, you know, you close the door of the cubicle, there's an ad staring at you. Um, it doesn't really matter whether it's in the toilets or in the elevator or on TV, radio, newspapers, outdoor ads, taxi backs, bumper stickers, um, skywriting, logos on T-shirts. Um, you know, the average person is exposed to... Well, I mean, then it depends on how long you spend online. I don't know if you could sort of conservatively say we spend maybe an hour or so online every day. We're, we're talking at least 5,000 advertising messages a day that uh, you get exposed to. So how many do you remember? Not many. And that's because most ads are bloody boring. Um, and they are because the scientists have taken over the asylum. These are the people that are, that are responsible for, for most advertising you see. There's this extraordinary industry called research that's worth billions and billions of dollars each year. And its primary purpose is to reassure nervous advertisers that their money is going to be well spent. But it's bullshit. I'm really sorry. But it is. You, you cannot research an idea. Um, you really can't. And, uh, and, but, you know, nobody... You know, here's a classic example of why everything's so bad. Again, <laughs> last night, as I got out of the taxi in um, Burke Street, um, I was confronted by this, and I had to get my little iPhone out and take a photo. Out now, lime, pear, slurpee. And so you look at that and you think... Okay, it's got lime and pear in it, but no, if you actually read the copy underneath, it says fruit image shown is illustrative of flavour only and not an ingredient of the product. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just garbage, isn't it? And it's everywhere, and you see 5,000 of them at least a day, and I'm really sorry about that. And I don't really work in advertising anymore, but more of that later. Um, so advertising, rational versus emotional, that's what it all is. I really don't believe anybody buys anything for rational reason. Um, the best ads, of course, use emotion, but 99.99% of them are done by those scientific people. And, you know, but that is the truth. Nobody buys anything for a rational reason. They just don't. If they did, how could you explain any of these things to me? You just can't. A new car. Now, if you had a financial advisor and that financial advisor said to you, um, I want you to spend $75,000 on these shares and the day after you buy them, they'll be worth fifty. And six months after that, they'll be worth thirty, maybe $25,000. You'd quickly tell that financial advisor where to go. But that's what you do when you buy a new car. It's just not a rational decision at all. High-heeled shoes, it's kind of the contemporary foot binding, isn't it? I mean, you buy a shoe you can't walk in. That's not rational. Um, <laughs> cures for baldness. There are none. You can, you can wear a hat. That's about all you can do. Um, that's it. But people spend millions of dollars because emotionally they believe that there is a cure for baldness. There's not. I'm sorry. I haven't tried, but I'm sure there isn't. Um, face creams, anti-aging creams. It's crap. It, uh, just so, sorry. You spend $150 on a cream that makes you look younger? Come on. That's a fairy tale. Um, nobody gives a fat rat's ass about advertising. It's true. And that's why if you want to do a piece of advertising that, um, that actually has emotional resonance then you've got, to, um, you've got to follow what I believe, anyway, is my manifesto. And that's advertising so in your face, if you want to do something to reach people, make them smile.
because the more they smile, the more they like you, the more they're going to buy from you. And it's really that simple. There's been textbooks and symposiums and all these people who believe they know how to sell things. But for me, it comes down to this. Just make them smile. I don't believe you can make people buy anything, but you can make them feel good about your product. And if they feel good about it and they're near the buying cycle, well, maybe they'll buy it. But that's the best you can hope for, and I believe it's by making people smile. It's that simple. I'm just going to steal something from my mate Voltaire here. Um, it's not enough to conquer. One must also learn how to seduce. Um, really important because, you know, you can, you can throw enough shit at the wall and some of it will stick, but in the end, if you actually want to seduce somebody, that's the best way to make them feel good. Um, empathy. It's the key word for everything that I've always tried to do and I've failed so many times, but when you, sometimes, when you, when you succeed, empathy is everything. And, and by that, I mean, um, you know, here's your cliche image of a wedding. And, um, you know, that's, that I find incredibly boring. But if you want empathy with a man, then you show something like this. <laughs> that, to me, is an emotional response, and that makes every man in the room smile. I was married once. I know these things. Um, but, you know, that's... That's for me, is empathy. Another example is, you know, you see a dusty car and somebody's written, wash me on the back. Oh, my God, I'm so bored. Um, but then I saw this once. I wish my wife was this dirty. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, that's empathy. That's, you see, that's a message that is emotional rather than rational and it provokes a, a response of laughter. And then that, for me, that's bingo. I've won. You know, that's, that's what I want people to do when they see an ad. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen very often. Um, here's another mate of mine. I'm going to steal his words too. Uh, an old Indian prime minister. The policy of being too cautious is the greatest risk of all. Um, and that's so true in any aspect of the creative process. If you don't take a risk, then you're nowhere. You're only going to be doing something that people have seen or done before and you just won't cut through. You've got no chance. So I, for me, creative ideas are things that involve constant innovation. Um, now I'm going to say ready Mr Music now because I want you to play the first of these clips. This one's about risk. This is one of my ads. I'm afraid exposure is the only answer. It is the opinion of the entire staff that Dexter is criminally insane. Same, same, same. <laughs> Um, that's got to be the dumbest, stupidest thing ever done, and I know that because that was me. Um, but that was just something I turned into an ad that was footage a mate shot of me at Bondo for years. We've been talking about what it would take to fly the promenade and one day the conditions came through and I was the first one, so I went and luckily my mate caught it. But that's what I mean by risk. I mean, that, OK, that's a physical risk. I don't do that anymore. I'm too old now. But, um, you know, that's what I mean by taking a risk. You've just got to take a risk, otherwise you're nowhere. Um, so ideas in advertising. I'm going to get to fairy tales soon, don't worry. Um, ideas in advertising, what are they? Again, here's the cliché visual of what, it, what an idea is. Um, I believe in strong ideas, and uh, that used to be a business card of mine a while ago. Anyway, um, I believe in strong ideas, um, because if you don't, you're just wasting your time. But, you know, these scientists, um, 
you know, they've taken over the asylum. And Bill Burnback, um, a great advertising man, he said, a great idea is like love. The more you analyse it, the faster it disappears. And it's true. Um, it's the research that, that, that kills things. Oops, hang on. Back one. Um, this is a wonderful metaphor I found last week in Hong Kong. Um, it's an advertising metaphor for me because this is what most ads are. Um, it's like, I want to say this and this and this and this and this and I've got to fit this in and you've got to say that. And don't, you know. For me, the best ads are simple, a simple idea that says only one thing. But Unfortunately, this is what most ads are like because research proves that if you say this, it'll work, but it doesn't. Um, it's a battle between ideas and information, I believe. I'm just going to steal something again. An idea helps you remember information and no one said it better than Albert Einstein. Now, Albert, when he was describing the theory of relativity, he said that the laws of nature are the same for all observers in unaccelerated motion and that the speed of light is independent of the motion of its source so that the time interval between two events was longer for an observer in whose frame of reference the events occur in different places than for the observer for whom they occur at the same place. Now, that's the theory of relativity as information. But Albert's a bloody clever bloke. He then went on to say, oops, if you talk to a beautiful woman for an hour, it will seem like a minute. But if you had to sit on a hot stove for a minute, it will seem like an hour. <laughs> now, that's the theory of relativity explained as an idea. And I get it. I understand it. I remember it. And for me, that's what the best ads do. They express some information in the form of an idea that makes you smile and you remember it. He's a clever man, Mr Einstein. Um, this is another example. Uh, Pangolini was a beautiful violinist a couple of hundred years ago. Um, and these are two portraits of him. One of them is by Dominic Ingres on the left and the other is by Eugene Delacroix on the right. Now, I can't technically criticise Ingres's portrait on the left there. It's got all the information there. That's exactly what it is, the portrait of the man. But what Delacroix has done, for me, it's an idea. I can actually hear Pangolini play just by looking at that painting. So again, that's a difference in my mind between information and an idea. Um, I much prefer the portrait on, on the right. So in advertising, it works like this. Um, Nike could have said, our shoes help Michael Jordan jump higher. But they said Michael Jordan won Isaac Newton nil. So for me, that's an idea. Um, Burger King, they could have said, you know, try our new fiery fries. Mm, they're hot, new starburst. But they did this. Again, for me, that's an idea. Makes me smile. I could almost eat one, although I did read a report the other day from the Surgeon General in America that said that um, a French fry is a delivery device for fat. <laughs> so probably I won't. Um, Volvo. Drive of, I worked on this account in the States. It was pretty trippy. But anyway, drive a Volvo because it's safe and reliable with the family in the car. Or you can say, drive a Volvo because replacement parts are hard to find. <laughs> Beautiful idea. That's, that's my version of poetry. Um, so what's all this got to do with fairy tales? Um, Look, I, this made me laugh. <laughs> Spider-Man's a contemporary fairy tale, isn't he, really? Um, and that's, of course, an ad for, for, for Rid, insect killer. I, I love it. That, to me, ticks every box as far as what I think is a great piece of advertising because it makes me smile. It's simple. I get it. Um, Sleeping Beauty. Ready, Mr. Music? Very subtle branding up the front there. 
Sleeping Beauty slept for 100 years, creaming a new diaper that stops leaks with a pair. Rise and shine, our prince is here. Bearing Kleenex Huggy Super Trim Diapers with new leakage control shields. These soft barriers help block leaks and funnel wetness into Huggy's blue inner layer. This unique design helps stop leaks like no other. Now Sleeping Beauty's wearing Huggy so new, and her dreams have all come true. Huggy's happily ever after. If you ever wanted proof, that advertising is shit. Uh, uh, the, the voiceover. A prince is here, bearing Kleenex Huggy super trim diapers with new leakage control shields. <laughs> uh, uh. Okay, he wrote it. He wrote that ad. I'm convinced he wrote that. He writes every ad. Um, okay, here's another one. Well, my dear, all the better to eat. What? Huh? I think somebody's hungry. Honey nut Cheerios. Mm. 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 I hate it when this happens. Because real golden honey makes every O the irresistible part of this good breakfast. Sorry, Red. Nothing personal. Honey nut Cheerios. No, I feel just awful about that grandma thing. Um... I lived in New York for a while and I worked on that piece of business. That's not one of my ads. Um, and I, it just astonished me um, how awful... That stuff's serial killer. I mean, it's basically it's sugar in a round shape with a hole and it's sprayed with chemicals. And those chemicals are the vitamins that are inside it. But anyway, um, as you can see, look, advertising people are really lazy and they'll just hook into anything they can um, to try and sell something. And uh, fairy tales are really... They're really easy to do it. Um, the next one... This one's actually not as bad. Yeah, a bit absent, isn't it? Yeah. The Grim Tooth Fairy Tales. I've been a tooth fairy. In the past, all I had to worry about was toothbrushes. But now you people are using something else after you've brushed your teeth. Oh no, not another bottle. Listerine kills more harmful bacteria than brushing alone, giving you healthier teeth and gums. These are rock solids. Oi! I'll go next door, mate! They're using Listerine night and day! While brushing starts, Listerine finishes. Yes, I mean, it's not too bad. I mean, there's worse. There's worse ones out there. I mean, at least there's, a, there's an idea in there that, you know, if you use that stuff, the tooth fairy's got nothing to take. Um... Rapunzel. I actually like this one. Ah, Rapunzel, my cupcake. Tis I, lover boy. Wait a moment, darling. I'll just let my hair down. <laughs> Ooh, ah, too short by a hair's breadth. Then you'll just have to wait for my hair to grow. What? I've gone bald by then. Well, hair day gone tomorrow. All you need is a red bull. Why? Because red bull gives you wings. Yes, but it also stimulates the mind. So get downstairs and open the blooming door. So you know that's it's got an idea in it. I like that one. Actually, made me smile. So it's not all bad. Um, but I love this one. I found this. A couple of days ago, in a book, it, it, it appeals. It, it appeals more to the dark side, of which I like to dwell sometimes. Um, a whole book of retold fairy tales. I was going to show about twenty, but I thought I'd run out of time. But they're good.
So, um, you know, where does an idea come from? Um, they come from everywhere, but I just thought I'd take you through a couple of examples just to sort of explain where ideas came from for me. Because um, it's probably a question I get asked a lot is, where do ideas come from? And they come from all over the place. They come from everything you look at and write down and take photos of. Um, one day, I was listening to the radio and uh, I heard this interview with Professor David Irving. Um, our, uh, he's a lovely man. He, look, he looks as nice as he is, doesn't he? There's, a, he's a, there's an evil goblin, if ever I've seen one. Um, he's that well-known Holocaust denier and... and uh, probably God of Pauline Hanson, um, who said, I have scientific proof that Negroes have smaller brains than Caucasians. And I just, that fact, or his version of that fact, stuck in my brain for years, and it was a long time later. I was in London at an ad agency called Saatchi and Saatchi, and I had a brief from the Commission for Racial Equality, which was basically an anti-racist poster. And for some reason, that, that quote popped back into my head. So I, I did this. And um, it became somewhat of a famous poster um, to the extent that in London, when uh, the IRA set off a bomb and killed a few people, the independent newspaper ran this as their cartoon with the word racist crossed out and IRA underneath it. And um, I'm glad I still have my kneecaps. Um, This was another example of where an idea comes from. Um, I was sent this from somebody, I don't know, you know those things that go around and end up in your inbox, these amazing visuals. And I looked at that and I thought, that can't be real. It just can't be real. It just looks faked. And I just everything I looked at in the image told me it was real and I was trying to work out what it was. I even saw that little sign down the bottom right-hand corner that said danger and I thought, okay, well, maybe there is a runway at a beach. And so at the same time, I had a brief in my department from Big Pond Travel. And uh, so I took that image to um, one of the creative geniuses in my department and said to him, Mate, I don't know what it is, but there's something in this. I, I have no idea what the idea is or the idea is, but, but just have a play with this and see what you can do. And they did this. Ready, please, Mr. Music. How good is this? Hotel right on the beach. Hey, Mum. Can't believe how cheap we got that. That was one of the better days in advertising. Um, cause, and this is another. Once in a while, it does all come together. And um, you know, everything, all the gods align and you get a good brief and you get a good client and a bit of magic happens. And, um, you know, this so nearly never happened. I, can't, I, I mean, I'll tell you how close it came to nearly happening. Um, my role in this was the creative director. I didn't write the script. I basically hired a couple of young kids from Melbourne, actually, who are up in Sydney, and they'd never made a TV ad, but they had a, a portfolio full of work that I loved, and I thought, well, I'll give them a go. And I gave the brief out to the whole department, and it was a beautiful brief. The brief was, Big Pond will help your kids do better at school, which is so rare that you, you get a brief as beautiful as that. And um, I gave it out to the whole department, and in a few days later I had about 20 scripts. And you know, it was very simple, once they were all laid out on the table, to go, oh, God, it's that one. 
it's what a beautiful insight because again it's this ad is all about empathy everybody has been asked a question by a kid not known the answer and bullshitted everybody's done it and it was just something that you could relate to but um the problem with this ad was when we presented the casting to the client um she rejected him out of hand it just said nice nah, too old he's too weird recast and so we did and then i went back to her in the meeting and, I, and it was i mean i'd had a working relationship for three years with this woman so it kind of helped that i could stand my ground because advertising is 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 deciding which battles you're going to fight and which ones you're going to walk away from and uh i loved this guy the director loved this guy the client loved the director and her real woman called vicky blanche from radical media here in melbourne wonderful woman great director and in the end, I managed to get it across the line and get her to change her mind on this guy by quoting, again, stealing words from a great American director called Joel Sadelmeyer, who used to put um, fat comedians in his ads all, of the, all the time because they would make people laugh. And Joel said, um, 30 seconds isn't long enough to develop character, so you've got to use one. And that's how this happened. So could you play it, please? Dad, why did they make the Great Wall of China? That, that was during the time of Emperor Nazi Goring, and uh, it was to keep the rabbits out. There's too many rabbits in China. Okay, now Daniel will do his talk on China. We, um, we called that the clubbed seal moment, deciding which frame you were going to cut his smile on. Um, but that was a rare one. That was an incredibly rare one where I don't think it ever happened to me before, but the client looked at the rough version of that ad and said, don't change a thing, which was great. Um, and again, it worked because it was empathy. It was based on reality there was no um there was no voiceover saying um he's here with super trim diapers with new leakage control shields you know it was a it was a real piece of dialogue that one shot was like 20 seconds long so you actually got the real dialogue and that's why people could relate to it it was real um to shock or not to shock um this is a question that i was faced with um when i did the job for the Gruen transfer. I don't know if people here know... Do you know the Gruen transfer at all? Yeah, okay, people know. The um, section where it's called the pitch, where they give advertising people a chance to come up with an idea that um, uh, that challenges something like selling ice to the Eskimos or whatever. And the brief that I was given was um, end shape discrimination. I didn't know what that was. I thought, shape, what is shape discrimination? Um, you know, basically it's saying you can't discriminate against somebody on the basis of their shape. And um, I gave it again out to the whole department in the agency and I was trying to write a few myself and I wasn't happy. And the day before it was supposed to be delivered to Andrew Denton's production company, I still had nothing. And so I, I did what I only could do was go to the pub with my mate and play pool and get really, really drunk. And... Uh, trying to think of an idea and I couldn't think of one and, and at one stage after about eight beers um, we were playing pool 
rather well, actually, but that's, that's a different story. And um, a large girl walked past the pool table and my mate cracked a fat chick joke. And I laughed. And at that moment, I then proceeded to choke on my beer and I um, realised that's what shape discrimination was. And so once I'd realised what shape discrimination was, uh, don't play just yet, um, I then had to kind of work out, okay, if, if it's about telling a fat chick joke, how do I elevate that behaviour to something that's totally and completely unacceptable? And so I had an idea and I wrote it down on a soggy beer coaster and the next day I woke up with a hangover and half an idea that still seemed good. And so I sent it off to Andrew Denton and he sent me a wonderful response saying, you know, thank you, I've been waiting for someone to take it seriously. And we made this ad. Show this out. How do black women fight crime? They have abortions. <laughs> How do you stop a poofter from drowning? You take your foot off his head. What's the difference between Santa Claus and a Jew? <laughs> Santa Claus goes down the chimney. Why did God create alcohol? So fat chicks could get a root. Discrimination comes in all shapes and sizes. And um, so that got me banned from the ABC. Um, but it was making a point that, you know, and, and I think for me, the breakthrough on that ad was when Will Anderson, the host of the show, said, it's made me stop telling fat chick jokes. And so, and he built a career on telling fat chick jokes. So it was, it was one of those moments where it made me change the way I thought about things and it made a lot of other people change the way they thought about things because if you can elevate behaviour to something that is unacceptable you can actually get through but I lost my job because of that ad um, and in a way it, it, uh, it proved to be a blessing because I don't work in advertising anymore um, I've opened an Asian tapas wine and sake bar in Bondo with my partner so if you're ever in Bondo come by and, <laughs> and, uh, and have some sake and the funny thing about it is apart from this right now this is, I've never done any advertising for it which is the ironic thing because um, word of mouth has more integrity than anything anyone ever pays for. Um, but look, I'll leave the last word in advertising to um, my God, my hero, Bill Hicks. By the way, if anyone here is in advertising or marketing, kill yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Just a little thought. I'm just trying to plant seeds. Maybe, maybe one day they'll take root. I don't know. You try. You do what you can. Kill yourselves. Seriously, though, if you are, do. Uh, no, really. There's no rationalization for what you do, and you are Satan's little helpers. Okay? Kill yourself. Seriously. You're the ruiner of all things good. Seriously. No, I'm, this is not a joke. It's going to be a joke coming. There's no fucking joke coming. You are Satan's spawn, filling the world with bile and garbage. You are fucked and you are fucking us. Kill yourself. It's the only way to save your fucking soul. Kill yourself.
at Siege. I know all the marketing people are going, he's doing a joke. There's no joke here whatsoever. Suck a tailpipe, fucking hang yourself, borrow a gun from a Yank friend. I don't care how you do it. Rid the world of your evil fucking machinations. Okay, whatever, you know what I mean. I know what all the marketing people are thinking right now, too. Oh, you know what Bill's doing? He's going for that anti-marketing dollar. That's a good market. He's very smart. <laughs> oh, man, I am not doing that. You fucking evil scumbags. Oh, you know what Bill's doing now? He's going for the righteous indignation dollar. That's a big dollar. A lot of people are feeling that indignation. We've done research. Huge market. He's doing a good thing. God damn it, I'm not doing that, you scumbags. Quit putting a goddamn dollar sign on every fucking thing on this planet. Ooh, the anger dollar, huge. Huge in times of recession. Giant market. Bill's very bright to do that. God, I'm just caught in a fucking web. Ooh, the trapped dollar. Big dollar, huge dollar. Good market. Look at our research. We see that many people feel trapped. If we play to them and separate them into the trapped dollar... How do you live like that? I bet you sleep like fucking babies at night, don't you? What'd you do tonight, honey? Oh, we made, uh, we made uh, arsenic uh, childhood food now. Good night. Yeah, we just said, you know, is your baby really too loud? You know. Yeah, it'll, you know, the mums will love it. Yeah. Sleep like fucking children, don't you? This is your world, isn't it? Thank you very much. That was hilarious, Adam. Thank you very much. And obviously a shout-out to all the scientists out there. <laughs> Actually, the thing that you said about the... Um, thank you. The um, pear slurpee reminds me of this ad... Or this um, thing that's on chip packets at the, mo at the moment that says something like, from farm to you in 48 hours. And then it's got this little thing, it's almost like the fine print underneath it, that says, on average. <laughs> so it's worse than, like, basically they shouldn't have done it because then it makes you think, hmm, so what's, it, what's, the, what's the maximum? So actually sometimes it's like weeks, weeks go by. Okay, now I'd like to um, introduce our final speakers who are a bit of a tag team of provocation. Their paper is entitled Hairy Tales, Pictures and Narratives. First, I'll introduce uh, Dr Meredith Jones. Meredith is a media and cultural studies scholar based at the University of Technology, Sydney. She is interested in culture and technology, gender, popular media studies and the body. Meredith has written extensively about body modifications, in particular cosmetic surgery, and is the author of the book Skin Tight and Anatomy of Cosmetic Surgery and Cosmetic Surgery, a Feminist Primer. She blogs and writes fiction and is the co-founder, with Suzanne Bocolet, of the innovative Trunk book series, the, four, the first of which, Hair, she'll be speaking about today, and I think they've actually brought along the beautiful product, and they'll talk about it. Uh, the next volume in the Trunk series is called Blood. Uh, and let me also introduce Suzanne Bocolet. She is an acclaimed Australian communicator, writer, thinker, artist and social innovator. She founded successful Sydney visual and brand communications agency Bocolet in 1990 and continues to create and exhibit work as a visual artist. Suzanne's studio focuses on brand design and strategy, creative and art direction, integrated advertising and marketing campaigns, social media programs, book publishing and the spectrum of design services for print and digital. 
The agency Bocalart has worked with an enviable list of major Australian organisations, institutions and events, including the Biennale of Sydney, Adelaide Festival, Sydney Opera House, Bangara Dance Theatre, the Powerhouse Museum, Music Viva, Australian Film Commission and the Sydney Film Festival. Suzanne also maintains a personal artistic practice along with her commercial design work, having been shown by Melbourne's Gertrude Street Gallery as well as the Ivan Doherty Gallery and she was finalist in the respected New South Wales Travelling Art Scholarship Award. Her work has been bought by the NGA and UTS Collection and the Powerhouse. So please join me in welcoming our final speakers, Meredith Jones and Suzanne Bocolette, for their paper, Hairy Tales, Pictures and Narratives. <laughs> Oh, scratchy. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Esther. It's Bocca Latte. Oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a tricky one. Yeah. And um, I should just also qualify that I don't work in advertising, so I'm hoping that I don't have to die today. <laughs> but thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, we're feeling a little bit like the two Ronnies here. Mm. But I'm, I'm, and I'm really glad Suzanne didn't wear her high heels. But I'm on tippy toes right now. Mm. Definitely more common wise today. Yeah. Um, right. Okay, <laughs> we're going to start. Okay, so basically today we're going to talk about hair and we have uh, our book here today. So we're also the sales part. This is the merchandising section of the, um, of, the, of the symposium today. So these are on sale. We'll talk about that later. We've got two books on sale. This is one of them. Um, and we'll also be calling for papers for our next book as well. We'll tell you all about that at the end. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so let's talk about hair. So hair is both appealing and appalling. We spend thousands of dollars dyeing it, cutting it, and styling it. But if we find one floating in our soup, we're revolted. Ultimately, hair is deeply contradictory, and no matter how hard we try, it's impossible to control. So hair is chaos. We decided to make a book about hair. We collected stories and essays, interviews, and pictures. We sent out a call for works to writers, academics, and artists. Do you want to talk a bit about why we were so interested in hair to begin with? Um, I suppose uh, I've always had a fascination for hair because being half Italian, um, it means that you are born with quite a bit of it. Um, uh, in fact, when I was born, my mother said that she looked down at me and, and saw this uh, strange little monkey. So my whole face was covered in sort of a fine um, down. So I suppose from that point on and then going into puberty and realising that I had quite a, a prolific amount of hair in certain places and it seemed to be getting worse as I got older that, um, that hair has always been fascinating for me. Um, and then I discovered laser at, um, a few years ago and that sort of transformed me. So I suppose that's why I'm interested in fairy tales because I've been there. I've been the beast, the wolf, the monster <laughs> um, and thank God for laser. And at the age of... <laughs> Over 40, wearing a bikini is quite transformative. Well, it's a transformation, and you should, I'll show you my legs later if, if anyone's interested. Um, and it's great to have a, a, a map of Tassie back. Um, before that, it was kind of hair pants. So I'm glad to be amongst you all, all the other women and princesses here today. So th thank you for coming. Um, so dead or alive, um, hair is a zombie part. Uh, it's the stuff of terror. It's the stuff of myth and fantasy. And we see stories of Rapunzel, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, uh, Puss in Boots, speaking of which, 
Um, Bluebeard and Little Red Riding Hood. Um, and things like Medusa and Lady Godiva, of course, the one that rode naked except for her hair on that horse. And it's taught us about transformation, protection, politics, uh, irrationality and confusion. And the power of hair persists. Hair is still a primary way to label and recognise our icons. It's implicit in the ways we distinguish each other and it remains absolutely crucial in our storytelling. And this, this image that we're looking at now, this is um, from, uh, from our book. This is Mr Bingo's work. He's a, he's a London artist. And um, they're rock and roll stars in the corner. And then on the other side, you can probably recognise they're the, all, all the hair, hairdos from Star Wars. And he's done a series of just hair. Um, does, does anyone know which band this is on the right? No, it's Guns N' Roses. Guns and Roses. There, I, th- I think there's a. There, if you have a look in the book, there's other, other sort of things as well. Some quite, quite famous hair without faces. Um, so hair, hair has a multitude of meanings. Uh, while while it's growing on the, on the living body, so there's a multitude of, of meanings. But once it's off, it becomes refuse, really, um, and in the same category as sort of mucus and and you know shit and and piss. Um, hair is also spooky, it's, it's visceral, it's delicate, it's incredibly long-lasting and, and the, the, most, uh, the longest, like, um, oldest human hair known is actually found in hyena poo um, and it's around 250,000 years old. I don't know why it's in hyena poo. Does anyone know? I'm not, just not sure. I thought it would be found on some kind of mummy or something, but it's in hyena... Did you work out that? Why it's no, poo? I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know why. Sure. Yeah. But obviously the hyena had eaten the human oh, okay. hair, so yeah, maybe okay. it had eaten the whole human. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. true. Okay, so given this drama, um, is it any wonder that many of the artists who submitted work to the book had worked with actual human hair? They had felted it, woven it, knitted it, embroidered with it, sculpted with it, and made mobiles with it. And this is um, a French artist at the top, and uh, her name is Roland. Uh, I can't pronounce it. I'm not very good with uh, foreign language. Uh, Solier. Uh, Solier. And uh, Ruth Peters is the bottom work. Uh, I can't He's remember. A Swedish what... artist. Swedish jeweller, actually. Uh, and that's, I think that's a jewellery piece down mm. the bottom. And that's kind of the top piece is sort of more based on that great surrealist artist that did the fur cup, whose name just. Does Merit Oppenheimer. Oh, uh, Oppenheimer. Yeah, Mer- yeah. Merit. Which is, yeah. yeah, Merit. Luncheon in fur. Yeah, the, what was it called? Luncheon in Fur. That's it, yeah. Mm. Does everyone know that piece? It's quite, quite famous. Um, so if we, if we move along and, and have a look at Rapunzel, um, everyone's talking about Rapunzel the last two days. Uh, famous gold, long golden hair, you know, the sort of thing, kept in a tower by a forest by the witch. Um, it, re- revenge for stealing that, that delicious spinach known as uh, Rapunzel as well um, and other things. To satisfy her mother's obsessive pregnant cravings again you know the, the evil sort of mother and her cravings and obsessions um significantly rapunzel then enters the tower and then when she reaches and here uh, we've got uh, a julie rap piece on the left which is a a lovely um joke really about rapunzel um well we think it could be also yeah it could be could also be very deeply serious um <laughs> it's julie it's julie rap it could be serious yeah, yeah. it prob- probably is uh, it's kind of yoga Rapunzel without a head. Hmm. And th- these are both in the book. And then the underpants are from a series by Helen Pinor, who ve- very delicately just knits or crochets single human hairs. Um, and a lot of her work is a commentary about the, um, the global trade 
in women's hair, which is a trade for, you know, the hair extensions that Paris Hilton has attached um, are most likely hairs from the heads of uh, Indian women. Uh, and there's, there's quite a, uh, a big global trade in uh, what we call virgin hair, and that is hair that's never been dyed and that is very long. So that's the stuff that Helen Pinor uh, buys to make her artwork. It's with. interesting too, because that also could be from the laser mob that we went to. Um, you know, this definitely looks like a, a waxing strip after you've had your bikini line waxed as well. Yeah. Okay, so um, Suzanne said that Rapunzel entered the tower uh, when she enters puberty. Of course, it happens differently in different versions of the story. And puberty is a crisis in terms of hair. We received many, many stories about the appearance of the first pubic hairs. Um, this is symbolic of transformation, of the onset, of maturity, of a farewell to childhood. But pubic hair can all also be the stuff of paranoia and extreme distress. So Beth Spencer, who contributed to the book, wrote in her story, there were just a few at first, but they were so thick and dark and black. I had some under my arms, but I'd seen that on Mum when she had a wash in the basin, so that didn't worry me. But this, this, can't possibly be normal because, because people wouldn't just forget to mention something so bizarre, <laughs> would they? So here's Rapunzel. Rapunzel. I love this yep. Rapunzel image, actually. And I'm sorry, oh, can you go back yep. to that one, please? Be careful, because yep. otherwise we're showing um, stuff that Joy's already shown and, you know... <laughs> It's a little bit boring for the audience. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, she said, um, uh, the witch cried, uh, let down your hair that I might climb the golden stair. So what's interesting about the whole Rapunzel thing is that the hair is both desirable and magical, but it also, as, as you know, we realise, keeps a prisoner. Um, she is effectively lends her hair to the witch and then to her prince so that she's, she's never actually on her own with the hair. And I was, I was really interested by this because I, I was thinking about even if she did somehow get through the door, I may, I'll imagine lugging that hairdo around. It'd be really quite stressful, don't you think? Mm, mm. Yep. Karen Goldsworthy uh, submitted a, a retelling of the Rapunzel story that we put in the hair book, um, and it's from the point of view of the witch, who says... I could perfectly well have magicked myself up into the tower without any help. And that isn't strong magic. People have been doing it in India for years. But I craved the feel against my face of Rapunzel's hair, cool as silk and alive as grass, when I wrapped my arms and legs around it and climbed up to her window. So then the prince, of course, comes along and love and disaster ensue as it generally does in fairy tales. And to cut a long story short, the witch shears Rapunzel's hair and sends her to the desert. Which leads us to this next line. Yep. So the wonderful, talented, amazing Arlene Texter Queen sent us this picture and it's called She Would Say, If You Don't Do What I Want, I'll Cut Off Your Hair. So Arlene only works with textures. I'm sure a lot of you know her work already. So um, the cutting of hair is, is like a cutting of the umbilical cord. It can symbolise uh, separation from mother. It can also, um, of course, re represent um, castration and rejection. 
And I was interested in, uh, we were looking at Von Sprantz, who's one of, who's a great, um, a couple of people have mentioned her work, the Jungian um, writer of, um, she does a lot of uh, uh, writing around shadow and, and fairy tales. And she writes that the sacrifice of cutting hair can represent a submission to a new collective state. Um, and the practice of shaving women's head is also seen as punishment, often for adultery. Um, and it dates, dates back to the, to the Dark Ages, the Visigoths. But I was, you know, really fascinated during the, the, the Second World War when, when the French uh, women were, were shaved uh, for sleeping with the Nazis. Um, and we've got the second slide of that. Um, these women were publicly shorn and then paraded through the streets on the back of a truck to the sound of a drum. They were painted in tar and stripped and marked with lipstick swastikas. Nowadays, bald women are often associated with chemotherapy treatment for that most feminine of diseases, breast cancer. So here's my own hair story. Um, here I am after undergoing, just after undergoing my own chemotherapy treatment in 2006. Um, but not many women embrace this temporary baldness. There's a massive industry, a growing industry, in wigs, turbans and hats for women undergoing chemotherapy and it seems that baldness is yet another insult to the shock of having cancer. Pam Benton, uh, who actually died of her breast cancer, uh, contributed to our book and writes about losing her hair to chemotherapy. In the past 18 months, I've had two mastectomies and four months of chemotherapy. At first, looking at myself bald felt like facing death. I quite enjoyed my bald head at first, um, but it got really bad when my eyebrows fell out and then worse when I lost my eyelashes, but the absolute worst part was losing the hairs in my nostrils, which I had never, never even thought about what those hairs do, but they really protect you from the environment. So the whole time I was waiting for them to to grow back, um, it was like breathing through sandpaper. So, so don't underestimate the importance of those nose hairs. <laughs> which, yeah. which is kind of ironic because I've spent, you know, so much money on removing hair and then, you know, when we, when we lose hair um, in certain places, it's, it's, it's a fascinating contradiction, um, this, this whole hair, hair thing. Uh, and it's interesting also that, that um, a colleague cheered Meredith up by saying, saying to Meredith that, you know, bald chicks are hot. Um, uh, but it is long hair that's always symbolised as sex in our society. It's this notion of the crowning glory. Uh, Susan Brownmiller, the, the feminist, says that long hair is ir irrefutably feminine and that while short hair is mannish or dykey, uh, and she likes to keep her hair, as, as I quote, at middling length, um, and she frets about its daily betrayal. So it's no wonder that there's this incredible industry for extensions uh, and which come from uh, those, uh, the women from India and China and, and, and now Russia, and it's such a huge industry. There's a dilemma for the modern career woman if she's been born with what Rep Rebecca Huntley calls in her story in our book, Unserious <coughs> Hair. Long, wild hair is associated with femininity and therefore with irrationality, with vanity and with a lack of seriousness. So having difficult to control hair is problematic for women who want to work in the highly masculinised public sphere. Huntley writes, 
What if Condoleezza Rice had a Don King afro instead of a jet black hair helmet? Would the President of the United States have listened to her quite so attentively? Which is interesting because we move back into the witches, which we love. We love a witch. And, um, you know, there's this wild hair has generally been associated with witch, and Condoleezza would never have wanted to be associated with that. It's all very controlled and contained. Um, and this is a Jura print from 1500, which shows the old witch perched backwards on the flying goat, um, and the goat, of course, symbolising the devil. Um, and the, the, the reverse seat also symbolises the sort of the, the rejection of the natural order. So it's, um, it's this uh, idea that her hair is, is going in the wrong direction uh, against the current of the wind. Um, and I was also... I was remembered at that... Roland Dahl's great, great story about the witches too, which is uh, where it's kind of the opposite there, that turning that tradition around where witches are bald and they have to wear wigs on their naked skulls. And it results in this thing that, that he describes as wig rash. And you can, you can usually pick a witch because they're the ones that are scratching madly their scalp. <laughs> there are, witches, um, witches are also known for their hairy chins, uh, which are emblems of uncertain gender status. And uh, Macbeth's witches have their wiry ch- uh, chins that signal their depravity as well as their power. But the figure of the bearded lady doesn't have to be depraved. It can be beautiful and tragic. St Wilgefortis, here on the left, saved herself from a dreaded marriage by sprouting a beard, but she was crucified as a result. Annie Jones, on the right, the most famous bearded lady of them all, made a life and a fortune for herself through her hairiness, and she was also uh, um, an early unionist. These are androgynous heroines who transcended the discriminations they suffered in order to embrace a form of gender duality. It's some great advertising there for you, Adam, as well, just so you can take some of that back. Cool. I mean, don't, I mean it's a shame you don't. Maybe we can suggest. Yeah. Thank you. It's like the redhead match has gone a bit crazy, isn't it? Mm. Um, so hair, hair kind of helps us. It's, it's, um, it's eloquent, both eloquently and horribly uh, to perform gender and sexuality. Hair is a marker of the feminine and also of the, fe- uh, of the masculine. And according to Anthony, Anthony Sinot, or Sino, perhaps, um, hair is a theory of opposites. So there's this idea of opposite sexes have opposite hair. Hair is in opposition to body hair. And opposite ideologies have opposite hair as well. So if we go back to the Bible, the Bible says, and I quote, Doth not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame upon him. But if a woman have long hair, it is glory to her. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> so here we've got a chest wig. Where did you take this photo? Uh, this was in Paris. This is a Parisian chest wig. <laughs> <laughs> Very stylish. Oh, I want one. <laughs> so, uh, what does this mean, this gender duality about hair? What does this mean for those of us? who are neither strictly masculine nor strictly feminine. Where does the hair of those people reside? What does their hair mean? Lucas Cassidy Crawford writes in our book about his hair in relation to his experience of being a trans man. He writes, Some solemnity, please. These lines are dedicated to every LA hotel concierge that stares at my chin hairs not because I'm a masculine woman 
although in some sense I am, but because I don't look quite right as a guy. And he finishes his beautiful and witty piece with the line, electrolysis, not by the hairs on my chinny-chin-chin. And here's another massive contemporary industry that we've already alluded to, the hair removal industry. Electrolysis, waxing, laser, threading, plucking, shaving. Most of it is done in order to determine gender, in order to show definitively that we are either man or woman. But it's interesting too because the laser people are doing a lot of crack sack and backs now, so a lot of men are actually getting that done and they're amazed by the amount of footballers that come and get the, you know, the, whole, um, that whole, the whole deal done, which must be incredibly painful on the testicles, but... Um, but it's a serious industry for men. Mm. So half mm. of their indus, half of their uh, clientele are, are men coming to get that treatment done. Mm. There's so a, look out. There's a PhD topic there. Anyone who's looking for <laughs> crack, yeah. crack back and sack. I'll supervise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we received a ridiculous, ridiculous number of submissions for the book that were first-person accounts of feminists having a Brazilian wax. This body modification is no simple act of grooming, but fraught with connotations of and connections to pornography and far more troubling connections to the prepubescent body. And yet, and of course that's why feminists are so interested in it, and yet there is an appeal to it, um, there's an appeal to the actual practice that feminists are not immune to. And this work is Prue Murphy's work um, that she... I think that's her own... Um, they're self-portraits, aren't they, from memory? Prue's work. I think they are yeah. self-portraits, yeah. You can see the same birthmark on, the, on oh, that yeah. thigh. Yeah, looks like the same person. Yeah. Um, social, social theorist John Ruskin had apparently only seen a woman naked in art, um, that is, no pubic hair, before his wedding night in 1848. And on seeing his bride naked, he was unable to consummate the marriage of his poor wife, Effie Gray. And, and she wrote to her parents that he had imagined, quote, that women were quite different to what he, what he saw I was. He was disgusted with my person that first evening. Out of all the Brazilian stories, our choice was by a Canadian philosopher called Cressida Hayes. And she writes, I went for a Brazilian at a local salon, feeling both humiliated and excited. She then describes the pain associated with having all of your pubic hair ripped out by the roots as glorious. And then she says that afterwards, my labia felt like velvet curtains, like the recently shed antler of an elk, like a silk scarf. So this seemingly repressive technique for making women look like little girls also opens the door for new sensations, for new connections with the sensual self and new ways of relating to one's own body. We're, we're such a complex thing, aren't we, us humans? So complex. But we should also forget hairy women because it's hairy men that can't be trusted. <laughs> Most villains are hirsute. Uh, the, beauty, the beast from Beauty and the Beast and that beast is hairy all over. I love this image. He's very dandy and dapper. 
He's gorgeous. He's actually a walrus or something. What, what uh, does a he boar. Know? Looks a boar. Like a boar. Yeah, a boar. Maybe was he a boar? I don't know. This is um, some of my favourite work from the, from the book. Um, this is a bluebeard, um, and bluebeard, as we know, is the serial uh, serial wife murderer, and his long blue beard representing depravity and uber frightening decrepit masculinity. This is uh, Leith McGregor's work, and um, on the the. That's the ball. He's he's done all that. They're massive, um, massive drawings with ballpoint pens. They're just done with blue ballpoint pens. Blue point. Yeah. It's great stuff. Yeah. And this is um, this is Lucy and Bart, and they do some amazing photography. Are they? I can't they remember. They I think they're Swiss. They're somewhere up sort yeah, of Scandinavia area. I've yeah. forgotten. They do um, body modification. That's all temporary. So there's there's a lot of it. A, a few more bits of it mm. in the book. So this was some sort of. What was that? What is that stuff? Oh, I don't know, but yeah. it looks like it. They also do stuff with grass on the human body and with um, balloons and stockings, and it's. But yeah. actually, check out their work. It's Lucy and B A R T, um, and they're online. Yeah. Um, and they're doing some really interesting work, especially mm. around gender sort of changes and stuff like that. It's, and it's very beautiful, and they're using this sort of. Um, they're using photography in the same way as fashion, I suppose, and the, the work is beautiful to look at. Mm. So um, where are we? So we're back, back to Bluebeard. And I actually looked up the, um, the word for wife murder, and it's uxoricide. So just... I'm glad she said that because I missed uxoricide. it I couldn't pronounce it. Yeah. But, yeah. So despite the horror of Bluebeard, I think we all actually have a strong desire to be enveloped by the hairy beast, to be drawn into his or her big furry embrace... Uh, this is French's work. He's, a, he's a, um, an illustrator from London. And I just love this. I, w- I actually bought this work because I loved it so much. And it reminded me of a film, I think, in the 80s. By a, and I, I wish I could remember the woman's name that um, did it. It was Kitchen Sink. Does anyone know? Thank you. Alison McLean did a great work called The Kitchen Sink where she, um, she finds a hair in the sink and it's a short film and she just pulls and tugs and tugs and tugs and suddenly she's tugging and she's putting her foot on the... and it's getting, the thing's getting bigger and bigger and it's a, a large hair and it becomes hairy and hairy and then suddenly a man pops out um, and then she just embraces him at the end. Whether or not the artist has seen the work, I just love it. Mm. Back to Von Franz. Oh, yeah, but we're back to Von Franz. Um, and she writes that, uh, of, of primitive folk tales uh, where demons are caught and they're combed and deloused. Uh, and she states that dreams about hair in wild disarray is, is actually often experienced in, in the start of psychoanalysis. So the comb represents the capacity for making one's thoughts ordered and clear and conscious. In the story, the girl with the evil spirit, the girl throws the comb at, at the spirit, and that it, it, it turns into a forest. And she suggests that the forest symbolises Mother Earth, which is kind of interesting. Again, this idea that it's Mother Earth, so it's it's the unknown. So, I just find that whole thing quite contradictory. That it's it's not nurturing; it's actually scary to enter into the unknown, which is known as Mother Earth. It's fascinating stuff. I'm not psychoanalytic, but you know, I'm trying. This uh, this slide is uh, one of a series. Um, of works that we received from an uh, Iranian artist called Payman Hushman Zadeh. Sounds good to me. Yep, yep. And, of course, it brings us to combs and to mothers and daughters. The comb or brush is a hinge between mother's hand and daughter's hair. It's an instrument for the taming and the teaching of children. 